Sometimes you need someone to be around you Someone to sit down and pour you short chew But sometimes saying goodbye to familiar folks is the only way Sometimes that's when you finally find your space Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, recording in Tokyo, Japan. And with me, as always, in Fukuoka, Japan, is my co-host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu and awamori professionals, published authors, and we've promised a deeper exploration into all aspects of Japanese distillation this season. And this episode is definitely keeping with that vein. We've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for a combined three decades and are very excited to share them with you through this podcast. Steven, how you doing? Doing well, as always, Christopher. It's, it's been a, a little while. It's been, a, a, what, a couple months since we recorded together. True. Yeah. Yeah, it has. A, I've been kind of flitting and flaunting around the world. Yeah, it's been fun to watch your journey. And I've also enjoyed the fact that I've been home for all of it. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we have a special announcement, actually. We do? Yeah. I mean, you left me with so much time on my hands when you're off in Okinawa and then back to the States. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. Well, now you have me worried because when you have a lot of time on your hands, you're, you know, the thinking time, your mind tends to go in several different directions. So this isn't a new art project or something, is it? Actually, no, don't worry about that. But as our listeners may have noticed, we don't advertise on the show. We also don't ask for anything. But I realize we have an opportunity to provide even more value to our fans and fans of Japanese spirits around the world. Uh, this sounds like a YouTube channel. It's not a YouTube channel, is it? No, I mean, we already have one of those where people can watch our weekly live stream. Okay. Yeah. True. Okay. I thought for certain though, for a second, you were going to have me in front of a camera, like sitting at a table doing Gary V style uh, reviews of different spirits, like he used to do with Wine Library. But okay, if it's not that, then I'm mildly curious. That's not a, not a bad idea, Christopher, but you really don't give me any more ideas. Um, uh, <laughs> okay, I won't. Um, so, so fine. Yeah, Phyllis, what, what are you thinking? What, what's in store? What's the announcement? So, well, we've started a Patreon. We have? Yeah. So I was hesitant to start, but I realized that through the Patreon platform, we can provide opportunities for fans of the show to get their hands on some pretty cool stuff. And to kick off this program, we're offering a day in the life of a shochu distillery as a single bonus episode exclusively for our Patreon subscribers. So all three episodes in a single narrative. Okay. Do you think that people will pay for that? I doubt it. Um, <laughs> But it's, I mean, it's just the first of many things that our subscribers will have access to. We've had a number of requests for swag, like t-shirts or coasters or glassware, that sort of thing. Sure. Now we have an avenue to make that available. And more importantly, we've begun planning exclusive bottlings of some of our favorite Japanese distilled spirits exclusively for our Patreon subscribers. Of course, it's going to take some time to work out the logistics. But it looks like we'll be able to start with bottlings for our Japan-based listeners the fastest. And then hopefully pretty soon after, we'll be able to have product available in the US and EU and hopefully other countries in the future. Yeah, this, this sounds pretty cool, actually. Where can I sign up? I mean, I'm, I'm always down for either a stamp rally or 
any place that I can amass more, you know, exclusive collectible items. Sure. So our Patreon address is, as you might expect, www.patreon.com slash Japan Distilled. Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Japan Distilled. Nice. Okay. Well, I remember you mentioning something like this a long time ago. I wasn't exactly sure where it was in the, in the um, gestation process, but I guess I have been kind of out of the country or at least not rooted to my little booze pantry in Tokyo very much since about February. Yeah, that's fair. And as I said, I had a lot of time on my hands. And so I started to make progress on this, started to flesh it out. And it seemed like as good a time as any to release it when we have this bonus episode offering, right? We had the three-part series, uh, which is, you know, one single day broken into three different episodes. We can put that into a single episode so people can listen to it, you know, continuously uh, rather than having to jump between recordings, but other stuff as well. Nice, nice. I like it. This sounds great. Um, cool. So is that a wrap on this episode? No, now we can start the episode. What? Yeah, we're going to talk about Koji. Yeah, right. Okay. Koji, Koji, right. Yeah. I mean, he's a good, he's a, he's a good guy. Koji's (laughs) a really, he's, he's friendly. He's dependable. Um, sometimes a little fruity. Sometimes he smells a little bit, um, ashy, but you know, Hey, uh stand up stand up uh individual definitely yeah um no but all kidding aside uh we've got to really dig into this one koji is so important koji the filamentous mold of course that is absolutely the lifeblood of fermentation practices not only in japan but similar mold fueled i think is a good verb to use or mold fueled mold based fermentation practices around the world are geez as old as the hills and as delicious as can be and we talk about koji all the time and i think it's something that we really need to get into um get down to brass tacks as they say i mean from the the base ingredients the yeast strain the fermentation temperature the actual duration of the fermentation and and a hundred million other factors every decision that the people who make shochu and awamori and other koji fueled ferments make affects everything else downstream it affects the final product and and you really don't have a product without koji i mean it is so fundamental to everything that's done in japan that's right and i mean we've probably mentioned koji on nearly every episode of this podcast yeah so far i'm sure we have and there's a reason for that it's not too much to say that without koji there would not be a japanese culinary tradition as we understand it today Mm -hmm. i mean soy sauce mirin miso pickles sake shochu awamori all made with koji here in japan in fact koji can be a meat tenderizer and for a long time takadiastase was a popular medicine in japan now what's takadiastase it was a koji-based medicine that helped calm the stomach by aiding with digestion through the enzymatic properties of koji. Right. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, Christopher. I know you've been gone for a while, but can you explain how koji works? It's, a, it's an amazing thing. As we've explained before, and I apologize for those of you who listened to episode 27, which was malt versus koji, to summarize uh, a great deal of that episode, koji takes the place of malt and malting 
in this part of the world, in many parts of the world. And it's a mold that performs a very, very crucial function when trying to make alcohol or trying to make other products from particularly grains or soybeans. And that is the process of sacrification. It's basically taking complex starch chains or polysaccharides and chopping them into simple soluble sugars or monosaccharides, namely glucose. And that glucose or sugar is the fuel that is used, that is metabolized by the yeast to give us all of these beautiful products that we hold near and dear to our, our hearts. On this show, we're talking, of course, shochu, we're talking awamori, we're talking koji whiskey, we're talking other spirits, maybe gin, maybe sometimes even um, eau de vie that have a koji spirit base. The key tools that koji uses to sacrifice, to convert starches into sugar, is a very powerful enzyme called amylase. And amylase enzymes are everywhere. I mean, everybody around the world uses amylase enzymes on a daily basis because we have them in our mouths, in our saliva. They're in our intestines. They are in our gut. And they help to break down. It's almost like a pre-digestion type of mechanism that the mold uses to create its own fuel its own food, its own nutrients within the grains. How this works is, and this is, I promise, way more complicated than I'm going to make it sound. This mold, which is a wild, it's everywhere in Japan, grows on a substrate. And for shochu and awamori production, we're talking, of course, rice and or barley. And the mold will sh throw little feeder tubes into the grains and those those feeder tubes excrete a couple of enzymes the aforementioned amylase enzymes and then also protease enzymes and protease enzymes are important for creating amino acids so you've got amino acid production you've got glucose production all inside of these grains and what effectively the koji is doing with rice or barley for instance is turning them into something that's akin to a grape in other words it's not necessarily a grain anymore it's a little sugar packet and with those converted starches with those grains that have been broken down a little bit internally you can then use those to ferment and make alcohol or make vinegar or start making amino pastes or sauces or soy sauce right meeting everything that Stephen mentioned before it is an absolutely miraculous and also indigenous part of Japanese culinary culture. That's right. That that's a really helpful explanation. Clearly instructive, I think, for the listeners and and for me. Every time I hear you talk about this, you put a little different twist on it, and, and I always learn something as well. So thank you for that. Yeah. Cheers. And uh, yeah, I think what's really interesting is it because it's creating both protease and amylase, and the amylase is sacrificing the starches into sugars, as you said, but the protease is is creating those amino acids, and that's where that's where we get umami right? Mm -hmm. That's where you get a depth of flavor in these final products that are missing in other, other traditions. How often do you hear about a wine or a beer or a whiskey described as umami laden? Just right. doesn't really happen. It's not even in the vocabulary of those drinks traditions. And yet we often talk about umami when we're talking about sake, shochu, awamori, these koji 
koji-based uh, alcohols. Yeah, and it's it's remarkable as well for another reason in that the koji is added to the fermentation. And while koji itself does not actually ferment anything, you don't have a fermentation without the sugars that the koji liberates side by side with with uh, the yeast. So it's a really, really complex, really, really beautiful and really delicious part of, as I said before, culinary culture from Japan that fortunately is getting its due, getting its time, getting respect around the world. And a lot of chefs are working with it now and, and the sky's the limit, quite honestly. Sure. So what about production processes? I mean, I know that we've talked about koji and malt in that previous episode, in episode 27. But what exactly makes koji unique? Well, it's really interesting as you learn about how different alcohols are made and what but really makes the koji process unique is, is essentially multiple parallel fermentation. Mm-hmm. And in the production of these alcohols, you, of course, you need koji to start with and you need that koji well grown on the, on the grain that, that you're using as your base. As you mentioned before, the feeding tubes or the haifa that grow from the koji into the grain that you're using and, and create the, the sugars and the, and the amino acids, that's done through the propagation of koji spores on freshly steamed uh, barley or rice, typically. You can grow it on other things, but we'll stick with those for now. And then over about a 42 to 48 hour period, you're maintaining temperature, the adequate temperature and humidity in order to encourage koji growth. As we know, molds like hot, humid environments and koji is no different. And when the koji is doing that, when it's growing on and into the grains, it's doing all of the enzymatic processes that we mentioned. And yet there's an art to it. I mean, you really have to maintain that temperature properly. And you also need to aerate the koji, uh, give it oxygen because it's it's an aerobic organism and it needs air. It needs oxygen. Yep. And also you want to keep the temperature down because if the temperature gets too high, it's going to, it's going to slow down in its processes. Just as if it gets too cold, it's going to slow down and even stop. Yeah. It has a sweet zone, right? Sweet spot. That's right. And it's really from about, I guess, 30 degrees centigrade to about 42 degrees centigrade is really that sweet spot uh, for where Koji is really, really active. Kind of like humans. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. Um, and then basically once you've got a fully bloomed Koji, inoculation that goes into the first fermentation, the primary fermentation with water and yeast. And that's where the multiple parallel fermentation begins, where the yeast is converting sugars to alcohols as the koji continues to convert the remaining starches into sugars. So the yeast has more to eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a really fascinating process, uh, how it all works. And the koji is so robust and it's creating created such a rich enzymatic environment in the fermentation, then when you add a new batch of another starch source into the second fermentation after like up to a week, that koji's been doing its thing on the on the rice or on the barley in the in the primary fermentation, you add a whole new batch of a new substrate like sweet potatoes or buckwheat or whatever it is that you put into your your main fermentation, and it goes to work again, right? Yeah, it can break down all of those starches into sugars. You don't need to add more koji. So yeah. it's a really robust fermentation and it, it, you know, and these, these are long fermentations. You're talking about two, three weeks, sometimes much longer for uh, traditional sake 
uh, production. So it's a really, really pretty fascinating process in comparison to other traditions. It absolutely is. And it's, it's amazing how, I mean, for me, and I said this before, I think, but the first time I ever walked into a shoju or an awamori distillery, I was amazed because there was no kettle. There was no mash tun. There was none of the hot side of making an alcoholic beverage that I was used to as a beer brewer. It's just a totally different way of getting to the the end of this process. And the end of the process is, of course, making a beverage that is delicious. In the malting world, you malt those grains and then the because of the dry heat of the kiln, the amylase enzymes are kind of sent into this stasis where they're inactive. They're, they're there, but they're sort of suspended. And then it's the hot water that reinvigorates the amylase enzymes. Hmm. And we don't have that at all with koji. In fact, if you put koji in hot water, you have no more koji, essentially. Um, it's You're going to cancel the entire thing. So there's no hot process at all. And I think for a lot of brewers out there, they're going to be like, huh? How does that work? And it's it's pretty damn cool, is is all I can say. And folks are getting very creative with it, both on the food side and on the drink side. And it's been around forever. But I mean, I have a, another question for you, Stephen. How did humans figure this whole thing out? I mean, there was yeast that they had to figure out. They didn't even know how yeast worked until less than a couple of centuries ago. So sure. how did it work with koji? Well, yeah, I think that's a great question. And, and a lot of this was really almost considered alchemy, right? Yeah. You knew that if you stepped on grapes and left them for a while, it turned into booze. And a sticky floor. Sure. <laughs> but they also figured out like ancient beer makers realized that you could extract sugars from grains and turn that to alcohol. So there was a process, but the organism yeast wasn't necessarily known as an organism. Mm-hmm. It just was part of what happened. And I think koji was very similar. Now, the traditional story here in Japan is that a wise old farmer found some moldy rice sitting in a, in a, in a damp leaf on his farm. Right. And he tasted that rice and it was sweet. And he realized that because it had released sugars that it could be made into alcohol. Now, that's the, that's the fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the truth is that Chinese fermentation techniques were imported to Japan. And this was probably in the 500s in the common era, I think, somewhere around that time when there was a more robust trade before the emperors kind of had a falling out between China and Japan. But what's interesting is when you look at Chinese fermentation techniques, they have these almost a slurry of different organisms that are all working together and even probably antagonistically to create those very unique Chinese fermented flavors. Right. And somewhere along the way, the Japanese isolated the organisms, which is what makes, I think, the Japanese fermentation so unique. And they were able to isolate these organisms before they knew that they were organisms or had any scientific basis for understanding what exactly was happening. But they were able to do that, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, very, very cool. And certainly by the 700s, in the common era, koji was being used to make sake and probably many other fermented foods in Japan. And so it, within a couple hundred years of the arrival of koji in Japan, it had been isolated as an organism. We have records of Buddhist monks in Nara making sake using koji sacrification methods, much like it's, it's made today. Yeah. And so sake has a 1300-year history at this point, you know, from the 700s in Nara to today, sake is still made in this traditional way. Sure. And if you think about other parts of the world in the 8th century, I mean, 
sake making methods with koji predates the introduction of paper to Europe. Huh. It predates Charlemagne. It predates the first Viking raid into England. It predates the first human settlement in New Zealand. I mean, the European and Arab worlds were just beginning to grapple with technology like harnesses for oxen and iron horseshoes. And here you have sake being made in this very sophisticated fermentation process. Well, I sure am glad someone was paying attention in history class. I mean, when I was in history class, they were telling me to study history and I was studying how to make beer at home. So uh, <laughs> clearly uh, you were the better student. Um, but I guess when you think about it, the one difference between koji and yeast, of course, is that yeast can do it th its thing and, and leave alcohol, right? That's what you can gain from it. But you don't really see any of that process. Whereas with koji, this is a filamentous mold. And when enough of it grows on a substrate, it creates kind of a, a fuzzy mat almost. So it's very easy to see, I guess, is what I'm saying. So it does make sense that they figured it out earlier. They knew mm -hmm. that without this mold, you weren't getting what you wanted. You weren't getting the alcohol. That fermentation wasn't going to be successful. So I guess just I just put that together in my head just now. There is a visual cue that even though a single spore of koji um, mold is absolutely microscopic, if you get tens of thousands of them bundled together and growing on a substrate, you absolutely can see that. That's that's a great point. Yeah, it's but it it really is. I mean, there's remarkable is almost too soft of a word for the history of this of this style of fermentation in Japan and sake at that time, the time that you were mentioning. And even today is made with what is known as kikoji, and ki can be directly translated or literally translated from Japanese into English as yellow. So this is quote unquote yellow koji, and yellow koji is used to make ninety nine point nine nine percent of sake brands. I think we've probably expressed that a couple of times before on this show. Mm -hmm. It's appreciated for the fruitiness of it, the sweetness that it imparts, as you said, in the grains, in the rice grains themselves. And it's one of the original koji strains used in Japan. And I'm going to put a, the actual Wikipedia name on it, which is Aspergillus orize. That's how I pronounce it. I'm probably saying it wrong. Would you say it differently? That's how I've always heard it pronounced, actually. Aspergillus orize. Okay. Yep. I've heard some people say orize, and I don't know which one is correct, but I'm going to stick with orize for now until I'm, until I'm, I'm shown that I'm wrong. And then I will cease and desist. But yellow koji, like I said, adds often will add that sweetness. It'll often help accentuate the ginjo side of sake making. And it's a really interesting, but also somewhat difficult strain of koji to use because it doesn't create really any acidity in the during the fermentation. And for that matter, a lot of strains of Aspergillus orizae don't really contribute a lot of protease to the koji propagation process. Some, some create more than others, but the amylase and action tends to be very, very strong. Mm -hmm. The acidity creation activity is minimal in many cases. And that obviously precludes doing open batch fermentations down in the subtropical climates of, let's say, southern Kyushu or Amami or Okinawa, for that matter. So it tends to be a more northerly uh, activity. That's right. Yeah, and 
in in traditional sake making, of course, three different organisms work in harmony. It's not just the koji and the yeast, but you also have lactobacillus bacteria. Right. With the koji making the sugars, the yeast converting those sugars to alcohol, and the bacteria is actually protecting the fermentation to keep other organisms from joining the party. Mm-hmm. It's how sake was made for a very long time until commercial acids were incorporated into modern sake production to replace one of those three organisms. But without that acidity, you really couldn't make reliable fermentations other, in, other than in very, very cold climates during the winter. Yeah, And sake is a lower temperature fermentation compared to shochu and, right. and awamori. And it's, it's largely for that reason is that you want to suppress uh, growth of other organisms. Of course, that's being done through the acidity, but also uh, through temperature. Yeah. And you also want to piss the yeast off. Fair. Pissed fair. off like, yeast. Ang- angry yeast thing. creates beautiful aromas. And of course, Christopher said that yellow koji is, is, was one of the original kojis in Japan used for fermentation. But it, as you have probably guessed, it's not the only koji. And of course, if you listen to previous episodes, you know that already. Uh, the second koji on the scene, at least for alcohol production, is black koji or kuro koji, which has been used in Okinawa for centuries to make awamori. And unlike yellow koji, which needs that lactic acid barrier to assure a clean fermentation, black koji creates its own citric acid to protect the fermentation, which is vitally important in hot climates like Okinawa. Absolutely. And that means that you can have a more open fermentation even in Okinawa, even in the summer. And for the most part, the yeast, which has been bred to tolerate these incredibly high, really, really acidic environments. A lot of the other stuff that's hovering in the air, the other microbes that would love to belly up to that buffet of glucose are not going to survive the drop into the pot. It's, they're going to sizzle for the most part. And that's how that fermentation can continue in a subtropical environment for, for weeks, honestly. When we talk about Kuro koji or black koji, that's another literal translation. It's a type of koji that has, of course, very, very strong amylase activity in the, w- during the propagation. And then incredibly high citric acid levels, as Stephen mentioned. And it really, really performs well with a rice substrate. It's so, it's so interesting when you when you nose awamori, for instance, side by side, all of them made with a rice koji substrate. Well, they're 100% rice koji in the fermentation. And they can go either really interestingly sweet with their aroma profile to something that has a funkier, earthier bouquet to it. Something really, really unique is, is, and I don't use the word unique lightly, it is unique. It's unlike anything else made in Japan. This black koji rice spirit just can go into this slightly mushroom, ashy, earthy zone mm-hmm. that is really beautiful, really delectable, pairs amazingly with food, and never gets as sweet, as far as I've experienced, never gets as sweet as sake, even though that sake is 100% rice koji in the fermentation. It never gets there. But you sometimes can get those sweeter notes, those kind of tropical notes occasionally. You can almost sense like um, different types of fruit that you'd expect hanging in, on a tree in Hawaii, you know? And that's not too far off from the climate of Okinawa, honestly. Sure, sure. I think that really does encapsulate, I think, what Black Koji brings to the party beyond, obviously, its sacrification abilities and its 
acid producing abilities, but the earthiness, the umami, the depth of flavor that that can be imparted, you know, as you mentioned, mushrooms is a great, great example. You really do get almost this forest soil, almost aroma sometimes. It's a really, really cool. Yeah, that's a good note. Yeah. Um, maybe tropical forest soil is what we're looking at. It's a, yeah, it's sure. a really, really cool uh, yeah. aroma profile. And it really does go all over the place. It is unique. Yep. No question. Yeah. Now, at the risk of geeking out too much for our listeners, and I know for some of you, that's impossible for us to do, but the temperature at which you inoculate your koji makes a difference in which enzymes it's creating and in, in what proportions. At higher temperatures, amylase is the dominant byproduct. That's really what's coming out of the uh, inoculation process. But at lower temperatures, the acidity is much more present, the, the citric acid. So a toji who knows what he's doing will keep the koji at the right temperature for just long enough to create just enough acid to protect his fermentation, but not too long because then he risks creating enough amylase to make as much sugar as possible because then it's going to decrease his yield. Right. So this really delicate balancing act is something that can't really be taught through book learning, but it has something you have to experiment with and learn and master on your own or in cooperation with other other toji. I say that, of course, while large distilleries today use optimal temperature and humidity to maximize your yields in a safe environment using machinery, mm -hmm. and that certainly is part of the industry today. So maybe what I should have said is that there's this balancing act in the traditional handmade style that is not something really could be taught in books before technology arrived and couldn't help industrialize that part of the process. Right. It was much more of a trial and error type of thing, wasn't it? You really need to hit a bunch of those temperature thresholds throughout the propagation of the koji in order to get the best performance out of your koji and to get the best cover on the grains and, and really get a I mean, depending on what you're going for, and every style requires a different procedure, a different application. And it, it really is remarkable how, how creative different distilleries have become and how really we're just beginning to see what can be done with temperature. And, and when you, for instance, what happens when you double the length of the koji propagation, as we've seen with Yoka koji the really, really deep and amazing awamori from Chuko Distillery, it just is is wild. The flavor profiles are off the charts. And so I think we're just beginning to see what can be created with a little bit of outside-the-box thinking and giving the koji the space to really perform at its optimal level. Yeah, I think that's a great point with yoka koji, yoka meaning four, so four day or four days, right? So four day uh, koji propagation. Like I said earlier, it's typically 40 to 48 hours. They're doing it for four days and it creates something else. It becomes <laughs> a completely different animal. Yeah. It's indescribable, really. It, it's a, an amazing thing. Yeah. Really, really special drink. Yeah. For sure. And so we've talked about yellow koji and, and black koji, which are kind of the OG koji styles in in japan and let's jump forward and we literally are jumping forward in time this is a completely more recent iteration to so-called white koji or shiro koji and this was actually discovered in a laboratory by professor genichiro kawachi back well a little over 100 years ago 1918 and this mutation was actually 
a black koji mutation. It was a kuro koji that was being incubated in, in the Kumamoto Tax Bureau. For whatever reason, Kumamoto Prefecture has the huge tax facility in Kyushu. It ended up becoming the dominant, or the, uh, maybe not at the time, but now it is the predominant koji type to use in shochu production, the, this white koji iteration. And like black koji, it does create a ton of citric acid and a very, very vigorous fermentation. But unlike black koji, it doesn't, it's heavier, <laughs> I think is the best <laughs> way to put it. It doesn't fly everywhere. So one thing you can easily tell when you walk into a distillery is whether or not they use black koji because it's growing on the walls. I mean, you can mm -hmm. see it everywhere. It just, it's like, I mean, if you're going to use black koji, you close all the windows, all the doors, you like wait and don't move too quickly because any movement is going to kick up an air current and that stuff is just going to sail. So it's, it's a really, it grows on your clothes. It's like everywhere. Um, especially the, the really, really wild strains. There are, there are more, um, docile strains today that have been isolated, but still. So white koji was to make it clear, a mutation from black koji and there are very distinct differences between the two in terms of their presentation in the fermentation and in the final product. Yeah, I mean, I've been talking too much about koji. Stephen, why don't you fill in what, what goes <laughs> on with white koji here? Sure. Uh, as Christopher said, white koji is much easier to work with. Uh, so it has become the preferred koji strain to use for shochu production. It doesn't grow all over everything. You can work with it essentially without a mask. A, a lot of koji or distillery workers who are working with black koji have respiratory difficulties with the black koji. Yeah. So the white, the white has, I think, improved the health and welfare of, of the industry as well. Yeah. I mean, just to add to that, the, if you think about it, and I don't want to horrify anyone, but if you think about what koji does, koji, koji grows on things and breaks them down. Mm -hmm. And now this is not necessarily a major issue with the koji used to make food and drinks in Japan, but there are lots of different types of mold in the world. And some of them are great for making food and cheese and yogurt and everything else that we love. Others, if they get into your lungs and there's enough of it in there, it can start to treat your, your lung linings like a substrate that it needs to break down, right? That obviously is not going to end very well. So this is, is something that while it's not to that, that extreme in the industry that we're speaking of today, there certainly are allergies that can be generated over time. And we know people, I think, who suffer from such allergies. They've worked in the distillery their entire lives, and they do have to be masked up when they work with Koji today. That's right. I mean, Tekan at Yamato Zakuda never wore any sort of face protection when he was inoculating his, his rice with Koji until one season we used black Koji and he wore a a respirator, sort of an N95 mask, uh, because it was bothering his lungs. And then he's actually, since that time, has had to continue to wear a mask. Uh, the allergy kind of developed. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. What I like about white koji shochu is it it's it's a little bit shy in its expression. You're not getting the mushroom and the earthiness and the and the forest floor. You're getting the aromas and flavors of the base ingredient being allowed to shine through quite a bit more. Mm. There's still some sweetness, I think, that it imparts. There's still a little bit of umami because it's still creating protease. So you are getting that, the amino acids. Yeah. But it is more reserved, I think, than black koji. And I think even, even more reserved than yellow koji. 
And so I found that I actually prefer white koji distillates when I'm drinking on the rocks, for example, because it's it's really just letting those those flavors shine through. Black koji, because of the the earthiness, I think expresses a little bit better with hot water uh, mm. than it does on the rocks. That's just sort of my my own personal preference. But yeah, I think I I kind of veer in the same way. And and to just talk about yellow koji for a second, I almost never drink yellow koji spirits with hot water because for me it just blares the the fruity and floral notes too much. They're really unwieldy with higher temperatures, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, I'm the same way. Now, I, I do love white koji shochu with hot water as well, but it is very, very different. They're all distinct. And that's part of the magic of this in, entire exercise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The koji itself does contribute a lot to the finished product. Now, don't get me wrong. Yeast is huge for aroma and flavor profile. Huge. And of course, the base ingredients, the raw materials are part and parcel with this entire conversation because shochu and awamori in particular and we keep i know there are other drinks made with spirits made with koji but shochu and awamori are distilled once in a pot still so you're getting so much of that fermentation the ingredients that were in there and of course the majority is those raw materials by volume by weight by everything but the koji does absolutely bend flavors in specific directions it kind of silos them off you could absolutely have the same raw ingredients but use a different type of koji and you would end up with a completely different product and so therefore the strain of koji should never be overlooked completely agree just taking a step back to yellow koji with hot water yeah i think my one exception for that is uh maybe not one exception, one of the exceptions that came to mind as you were talking is actually torikai, the rice shochu Mm -hmm. from Kumamoto, made with yellow koji. But if you get the balance right, both you need, I think you need a little bit lower heat temperature and you might need to get a little bit heavier on the shochu. Yeah, maybe. I've never had luck with that one, but okay. When you do it just right, there's so much umami in that spirit. There that with the hot water, it really shines. But I can see I, the, I, the, the ginjo aromas, of course, are, are gonna, can blare uh, with the hot water. So Yeah, they do. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I'll have to try that one again. Yeah. And of course, there are some sweet potato shochu, I think, made with yellow koji that could could play well with hot water. But yeah, um, I guess for folks overseas who have access to uh, some of the brands from larger distilleries, if, if you want to experiment with trying these three different koji with something made from the same distillery. Oh yeah. Yeah. With the same base ingredient. Right. I think that's a really nice experiment for people to do. Ah. Maybe even some izakaya or bars overseas could start offering flights so people could explore this sort of thing. A really easy one, I think, is the Hozan series from Nishi Distillery in Kagoshima. Of course. Good call. Very famous in Japan. Probably the most famous yellow koji sweet potato shochu is Tomino Hozan. And then Kicho Hozan is the black koji version. And then Hakuten Hozan is the white koji version. And so if you can get your hands on those three bottles or find a bar that has all three, you can actually taste all three, same distillery, same kind of sweet potato. Only the koji is different, right? Only, only the koji is different. That's right. So it's a really easy way to kind of get you, wrap your head around how much the koji can influence the, the final product. Yeah. And of course, if you're lucky enough to live in Japan, then you could do the same comparison with Monzen Distillery. Ah, uh, yeah. If, if you, you can, can get the, if you can get your hands on it, sure. Yeah. So what you got there? Yeah, they have a trio as well. What are they? 
that's right. So again, yellow would be Manzen An. Oh, that stuff's so good. Uh, it's really good. And then Manzen, the main brand, is made with black koji. That's their the thing they make most often. And then, of course, the unicorn is Manazuru, which is the white koji. Which is one of my, yeah, that's one of my, yeah. my bae. That's my bae. Would, would Manzen An play with hot water? Is that you also don't drink? I tend not to. I tend to drink that one either Mizuwari rocks or sometimes I've had it with carbonation and it was pretty good. But yeah, usually Mizuwari are rocks for me on that. Yeah, I think the fir- that was the very first shochu I ever had with soda was Manzen on. And it works. Yeah, it works very, very well. I, d- I thought maybe because they have so much body in their shochu, I thought that might work with hot water, but I'll take your word for it. Yeah, it's so good. It's so, you, you want to leave those. See, the issue with, with hot water, of course, is it increases sweetness and yellow koji tends to impart quite a, a sweet, a pretty high caliber sweetness to what it touches. So you do have to be really careful with heat, with yellow koji spirits, uh, just because there is a point where it just gets out of control. And then all of a sudden you're just tasting not just a sweetness, but almost like a, an astringency of sorts that. For me, anyway, I have a very, very low tolerance for that, apparently. And so, I do, I'm kind of unforgiving when it comes to that, especially because I love the earthiness with the light sweetness of something that has a lot more funk to it. Sure. I mean, you're the, you're the Oyuwadi expert in the room. So, uh, I think yeah, uh, expert. I'm defer a, to... A, a junk, an Oyuwadi junkie, I think was probably the <laughs> correct way to apply a title there. Sure. But yeah, I mean, Manzen, Manzen are amazing. Um, all the best yeah. to them. I hope that I can find more yeah. of their stuff soon, but I probably won't be able to. <laughs> yeah, really wonderful distillery. Very limited production as well. Uh, tiny, tiny place up in the mountains in northern Kagoshima. As we wrap up, Christopher, are you sipping on anything? We haven't done one of these in a while, so I thought maybe we'd have a drink together. Yeah, I, I'm, um, I am actually. I'm, I'm drinking a little bit of, and it's apt for the, the Oyuari conversation. I'm drinking an Awamori. That's only 25% ABV, but it's designed for the winter months. And it's made by the good people who make Danryu. Remember the Danboru uh, highball that's so popular down in... Oh, yeah, yeah. So, same makers there. Yep. They have this series. It's a four-bottle series. And they have a, a winter brand, a spring brand, a summer brand, and a fall brand. And they're all designed to play well with the seasonal cuisine of Okinawa and the rest of Japan, of course, and really anywhere in the world. So this, this one has a more distinct, like a, a grittiness to it, a little bit more of a, of a, what I would consider the darker and the richer flavors of Awamori, the type of thing that goes really well with um, Oden, like a lot of winter treats, a lot of winter snacks that are going to help to keep you warm. I don't know how warm you need to be kept if you live in Okinawa, but uh, <laughs> certainly up in this part of the world and, and further north, it, it, it's not lost on us that, that that can be an asset. Sure, no question. It's, so you and I never talk about what we're going to be sipping on before we record, uh, but it's it really interesting to me that we both chose Awamori. I'm sipping on uh, Harusame Kari. Nice. So uh, Miyazato Distillery, one of our favorites, really iconic label a beautiful awamori this is a little lighter this one is really nice uh, on the rocks or mizuari i'll do it with coffee sometimes my coffee soda with a splash of awamori yeah uh, is often with uh harusami kari nice yeah good stuff 
Excellent. Well, this was overdue. Yeah, you know, I think it was. I think it's kind of funny we did Malt versus Koji first, I guess, just to get people to wrap their heads around the production differences. But we've needed this kind of roll up our sleeves and get get down in the weeds on on Koji. So, yeah, good stuff. Koji's queen. Koji's queen. <laughs> now that people have a little bit better understanding of it when they see the word Koji on the bottle or when they see it anywhere, they can hopefully wrap their heads around what went into making it. And uh, when you see it on a menu, dive into it. If you see meat that has shio koji, S-H-I-O koji, order it. Just get it. No second thoughts. Just buy that meat because <laughs> it's going to be amazing. <laughs> it's going to be so rich. Um, you know, the amino acids released, you know, the free glutamates that are, re- that are unlocked by the protease enzymes in, in shio koji are just to die for. And koji is just amazing way to play with flavors and and that is absolutely the truth with japan's indigenous spirits and its more recent spirit innovations yeah no question i think uh, that's a great call with food because i think you're going to see koji on menus more in the states in a in a on the food side of the menu yeah than you are on the drink side of the menu and a lot of chefs are experimenting with koji both for uh, meat tenderization, but also for pickling for all sorts of things. And so yeah. start to taste those koji fermented or koji inoculated products and see see how you like them. And of course, they're going to go great with koji based spirits. So if the bar also or restaurant also has some shochu or awamori on the menu, uh, we recommend do a little pairing experiment uh, and learn more and more about koji. Kampai to that. Well, thank you very much for listening again today. And if you have not already, then please consider rating and reviewing the Japan Distilled podcast wherever you enjoy listening to these episodes. It really helps others to find the show. We can't stress that enough. And please feel free to reach out to us at any time on Twitter or Instagram. You can find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. How about you, Stephen? Yeah, and you can find me at Japan Distilled on both Twitter and Instagram. And check out our website, japandistilled.com, for show notes for this and every episode. Also, please tune in to our Japan Distilled Show Tuesday, every Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight and 10 a.m. Wednesday in Japan. And of course, don't forget to sign up for our Patreon, which I also just found out about today (laughs) at (laughs) patreon.com slash japandistilled. Kanpai. Kanpai. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. Time.